if you don't have a little bit of almost insanity in you, and if you don't have an exceptionally high risk tolerance, this is definitely not the industry for you. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? So on this podcast, I think it's really important to learn from people in all different categories and industries, from software as a service to direct to consumer. But it's also important to go to other industries that you might not know anything about, ones that are even taboo. We've had someone on here that is called the Sex Toy King. And today we have someone in the cannabis industry that is quietly building something in Massachusetts that is becoming the Apple Store bud for cannabis. And it's Meg Sanders, who is the co-founder of Canna Provisions. In the past four years, they've gone from idea to making $40 million. And they do it with just two locations. And her story is quite phenomenal. She talks about coming up with the idea, how she found the perfect location, why her area of Massachusetts was the right spot, and their insane growth even through COVID and how they're just getting started. And what's more impressive is they're doing this despite all of the regulations and hurdles you have with this category and the fact that they can't do any traditional marketing. And so we get into the details of how she's pulled that off and how she manages this crazy industry and stays sane, some of the the mental frameworks that she uses. So really hope you enjoy this episode with Meg Sanders. I definitely learned a lot and hope you do as well. All right. Today on the podcast, I have someone I've been excited to talk to for a while now. We have Meg Sanders of Canna Provisions. So Meg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jim. Grateful to be here. Yes. So Meg, do you mind introducing yourself and tell us what is Canna Provisions? Oh, I'm excited to tell you all about it. So I'm Meg Sanders. I'm the CEO of Canna Provisions. And we have been in operations for about three and a half years now. It is just an exciting time to be in cannabis anywhere, but we happen to be in Massachusetts. So we are located in Western Mass, and that includes a dispensary location in Lee, Massachusetts, as well as a dispensary location in Holyoke. And we have our cultivation currently in Sheffield, and we are building an additional cultivation in Lee, which is also where our dispensary is. So yeah, that's what we've got going on right now. And this was a startup, just like most cannabis companies who, who have started in a new state. And that included all the fun of everything that you have to do for a startup, including raising money and finding good partners and hiring and building and all of those fun things. So it's all of what you would experience in a normal business, but then you add cannabis to it, which adds a massive layer of hurdles. We'll just say hurdles. <laughs> High degree of difficulty to say the least. And can you speak at all to the the size of the company, whether it's any range of revenue or even like how many people you have, just so people kind of know the magnitude? Yeah, happy to do that. We are approximately 40 million in revenue annually. We have, I think, about 123 people currently in our employment ranks. 
And that's across several locations and also massive layer of skill set from professionals in accounting and professionals in marketing all the way through to hourly people that work for us in the stores and in cultivation. And yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of moving pieces. That's huge. And when did you start it? The company began in 2018. We closed our initial funding at the end of 2018. And we started going through the process of regulatory hurdles, building out and all of that in 2019. Our first store opened July 5th in 2019, and that was Lee. And then the second store opened a year after that. And what was really interesting is think about starting a business right before and then actually right smack in the middle of COVID, right? Never ideal, never an ideal time to start. But one thing that we do know, and I'm sure probably a lot of your audience is familiar with this, but sin often wins in times of upset. And so you see alcohol sales, tobacco sales, gambling sales, and also cannabis sales that survived and thrived during the pandemic and actually became a relief for a lot of people that were going through massive upset stress learning how to homeschool their kids and work from home at the same time and manage internet bandwidth and all the things that we were going through as a, as a human community. And then I would say that we're still dealing with the repercussions of that just because we're kind of coming out of it doesn't mean we have recovered mentally. But I, I do know that cannabis was a big help for a lot of people. Yeah, we're going to get into what you had to overcome during COVID because you've been around four years. You're at 40 million bucks. You've done that through COVID and you're really just getting started. It's like inning one or two of, of the category you're in, which is beyond exciting. So I'd love to even take a step back. Like, how did all of this get started as you look into 2018? Because you clearly saw an opportunity and you have capitalized on it better than most entrepreneurs could. Tell us that story. Yeah. So we were operational in Colorado with a different entity and through that process, we were going through a lot of this development and also working with other states, legislatures, and local governments to help them get cannabis ordinances and laws on the books and try to unpack all the things that cannabis is and all the things that cannabis isn't. And Massachusetts was really on our radar for a long time. And the medical part kind of rolled out in a way that wasn't conducive to our way of operating. But then we watched the adult use regs make their way through the law passed, getting everything on the books and getting departments set up and getting applications ready to go and really decided it was a, it was a great area to focus our consulting work. And when we did that, we really didn't have any intention of being operational in Massachusetts. It was, we were consulting heavily and had several clients here and really enjoyed that. And then one group in particular that we were working for kind of showed us their locations and made the ask of, hey, would you guys consider operating this? And through several discussions, I should say, and, and trying to weigh it all on a pro and a con on a whiteboard, we decided to jump back into operations. And like I said, part of that was due to the thoughtful regulations that Massachusetts had that, that we, we felt like were, were good, good on the books and always room for, for improvement. For, but for an initial launch, it, it made a lot of sense. And then we truly just fell in love with Western Massachusetts. And, and that was probably one of the biggest drivers. Wow. So you're consulting and you see this opportunity that you almost cannot pass up because timing's right. The the marketer geographic region is right. So you, you jump back into the operations role. And so 
talk to me like you, you you've done this before you you have sold a company before can you talk to that path of okay we have this idea we're going all in when did you realize you had something special and you started to see some real traction oh that's a that's a really great question i would say there's a there's a precursor to the specialness and then there was kind of the post what was happening as we were actually operational and the first thing i would say is we found a great location that was not on the market as often happens when you're trying to start a business you don't just look at what's on the market you look at things that are off the market and go for the one that makes the most sense and the business owner gave us no's i think three or four times until we finally made him an offer he couldn't refuse and that became our big focus in that this is a dream location, 350 yards off the Mass Pike, next door to Dunkin' Donuts, across from McDonald's. I mean, we didn't have to do the market study. It had, it had been done for us. And we also knew the lay of the land in, in, in Lee, which was there was only going to be two retail. And so we felt, wow, that's, that's fun stuff. We can, we can operate in that really, really well. And that was the first kind of magic gem of we landed the building that made so much sense. And then we ended up being right. So it's kind of a roll of the dice and a little, everything has risk in it, but we felt pretty good about the decision. And then we got our doors open and we immediately, I mean, I would say within a few months, we blew past our projections. I mean, blew past it. And a million ways to Sunday had to figure out how to cram more transactions through a really small space. This is not a large location. And that was kind of the next part of the, of the Jenga puzzle was how do we get more people through this, this facility? And that was a work in progress all the way through till we got shut down right before COVID. And right before we got shut down, those were some of our highest performing months to date. So we were just cranking. I mean, just people were buying weed. And the most interesting, I mean, we literally, I want to say we had less than, less than 36 hours noti notification that the governor de deemed us unessential and that we would have to completely close our doors. And, and we didn't know for how long. It was crazy. So that last day before we had to, that last day that we shut down was probably the biggest bunch of mayhem you've ever seen. People lined up just please can we get in please can we get in and we had a hard shutdown time of, of noon that day and it was crazy and then the uncertainty of being closed and trying to manage a business that is not operational and still has bills to pay and all that fun stuff that was that was a whole new lesson because none of us had ever had to do that and then then we get the news that we're going to get 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 open again and and just just as you can imagine the pent up demand was massive and we were slammed from the moment we opened until today <laughs> so here we are man that, that yeah that, that's a crazy ride and so i want to back up to what you did that worked out so well as you look back as like a Monday morning quarterback, because you're talking about the location is really one of the things that nailed it for you because you, you have two locations, you're doing over 40 million. I mean, you're really like doing quite a high volume of, of transactions through that, but you're able to kind of do a smart cut where like, hey, if McDonald's is here, Dunkin' Donuts, like they've clearly done their market research on ideal locations. Let's piggyback off of that. And then there's some other probably synergies as far as like driving distance that people would go to. So it worked out well there. Like how much of your success is around that location versus how much is superior product and then like amazing operation? 
but that's a great way to, to divide it up. And what we know for sure after being in this business for as long as we've been at, been at it, I mean, this is my 12th year. What I know for sure is adult use cannabis is a retail business. And if you are not in a retail location, it becomes very, very difficult to compete with others, including other towns, stores in other towns that get those prime locations. So that's first and foremost. And often what happens is towns who are a little worried about this or have a little pressure on them from their community, find a way to kind of tuck you in the industrial zone or tuck you over here in this commercial district, but it's not necessarily a retail area. And with our, with our restrictions, because of cannabis, we have a lot of restrictions on how we can advertise. It really becomes apparent to have, you, you need to be visible. I mean, really visible. And, and so drivers buy, people can find you easily. Those are really important things. That, that was the first part of it is we knew we had to find a good retail location. And what's the rule in real estate? Location, 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 right? That was a part of the equation. And then the other part of the equation, which I think is incredibly valuable and incredibly important, is we felt an, an, an urgent need and an early need to differentiate ourselves. Because we knew if we didn't come out of the gate authentic, telling authentic stories with a differentiation plan, we're going to just get washed up into all the other stores. And that focus was number one about customer experience. And people say that all the time, but they often equate customer experience to what does your store look like? And yeah, that's part of it because you want people to feel comfortable and create an environment that people can successfully have interactions in. But really for us, the differentiation was most cannabis sales are super transactional. They're not relational. And there's lots of reasons for that. I think it's this, if you build it, they will come mentality, which if I can tell you anything, that is a very small success rate. That's not what happens anymore, especially in an existing market. Then the next part is if you have a big counter in front of you, but you know, that's separating you from the customer and then there's a whole bunch of people around you you really limit the opportunity to create a relationship and for customers to feel comfortable asking questions about, about products and experiences and being, being really sensitive to they don't want to sound stupid. They don't want other people hearing them. And so the way a lot of these shops have been designed in the past are kind of this pharmacy model of there's a counter, the products are behind the counter. The customer's on the other side of the counter and there's a line and you're waiting to go see the person at the counter. And that does two things. It, it creates a, a more of a transactional experience, but it also really ties up that key point of a sale, which is when you cash out, right? So if that's, if that's also your sales area, you're limiting how many people you can get through the door just, just by that decision as a business. So what we tried and, and were, again, lucky and successful, <laughs> maybe in that order, was a different way to transact. And that was to take the counter out of it. Let's set up little kiosks. Think Sephora. Think, think, think any place where you stand side by side with, with a salesperson and look at things and talk to that, talk about it. So you're standing shoulder to shoulder, which immediately creates rapport. It's more of a private space. There's no one waiting behind you to talk to the same person. So you can take as long as you want, ask as many questions as you want. And that's really important kind of side note in that 
at the time, and still, most people are not cannabis consumers. So you, you want to create an environment that people that are coming to cannabis or coming back to cannabis, is it's safe and secure and you feel welcome and you feel comfortable so that you can ask appropriate questions to get the products in your hands to make sure that you enjoy the products and come back. And that, that was kind of the goal. We wanted to have this relationship sale in a, in a more private space. And then we can take as long with the sale process as you want. And then we send you up to the counter to pick up your order and pay. And what we realized is that we could crank a lot more people through the space that way. And we really understood that the value that we hear from our customers is the comfortable space, the safe space, the ability to ask questions and get thoughtful answers. And that has been, I think, the differentiation for Canna Provisions. That's amazing. I'm picturing two models. It's like the Apple Store model where there is no like true counters, people with iPads. I'm also picturing like Home Depot where you have the person walking around where you can get advice of what is the, the right thing to get and doing, doing that private setting. So you don't feel like an idiot being like, wait, what is this thing? What does it do? Is, is this right for me? And so it sounds like it's done two things. It's made customer service, one, fantastic. And two, you've been able to really move through the amount of people going through that store and that transaction volume. So it's so it's it's like location, it's customer service. And for me as a marketer, I'm like, okay, if if I'm working with the brand, I'm thinking like, oh, let me stand up Google ads, let me stand up meta and Instagram ads and do a lot of things where when you're in cannabis, that's off the table. Are there other things you had to do to build awareness or was it, hey, we nailed location, we nailed, nailed customer service and and the people showed up? So I would say a lot of our growth was super organic. So it, it was really, yes, people found out about us driving by. They maybe saw ads or, or billboards that we had up. But really, I think the, the strategy, which was Eric, Eric Williams, my partner, this is, he brings brilliance in every aspect of the operations. And this is one of, an example of one of those brilliant, brilliant thinking minds, which we did in other businesses, not just with Canna Provisions, but he understood the value of earned media. And when you can't pay for, when you can't pay for ads, when you can't pay for things that is normally how customers find out about you, and by the way, neither can any of our competitors, then how are you going to get the message out to the masses? And so with his brilliance and this kind of earned media strategy, we hit the ground running with, with all kinds of media hits on a regular basis, and we still do it today. And I would say that is a really important part to a lot of our growth. But what we also have been able to do is take that, take that media and tie that into SEO optimization, basically our, our SEO, right? Our optimization of our, of our website. And just climb up the ranks of the Google rankings the best you can knowing we can't buy any Google ads words, we can't do any optimization other than search engine, right? So that was really powerful. And then obviously every customer that came in, making sure as best we can that they have a great experience. And so we build that clientele and really importantly, get those emails or those cell phone numbers for texting so that we can reach you very personally and very thoughtfully 
And then we're not crossing our fingers and hoping you see a pop-up ad from us. <laughs> yeah. And especially with a product like cannabis, where the retention should be really strong, high repeat usage. So once you get them in the door, want them to have an amazing experience, get their email, get their text. So you have them because the hard part is that top of the funnel that you talked about when you taught, when you say so you can't do specific types of ads and focus on earned media. So everybody listening is like, yeah, I want to do earned media and do it well. Can you give any examples of either like a specific article that worked or a tactic if it was going hyper local and like owning a specific region or an outlet, like anything people could learn from that, that worked well with earned media or even something that flopped to, to watch out for? Yeah. So I would say in this space and kind of the current state of journalism, right, it's much different than, than even five years ago, even 10 years ago. It's, it's very, very different. And what we know is those hyper-local writers are going to tell your story and, and are living and breathing and dying on, on having those great stories to tell because they, they have a readership, right? It's a very local readership that depend on them. And those are the ones that are going to write a really thoughtful, authentic story about you. And those are going to get picked up and moved up. It very rarely goes the other way, right? It's not like that local writer is going to grab something from WAPO and, and throw it in to, uh, to the Berkshire Eagle. That's, that's, that's not going to happen. They might throw a few AP articles in there, but it's, it's really, it, the funnel goes reverse. It goes hyper-local up and then the regional picks up your little story. And the next thing you have other interests and other people want to come. So our, 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 our focus, I want to say, is, is definitely hyper-local, but we, when we have opportunities to make a splash, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, 60 Minutes. I mean, I could go down the last, I've, I've, we've been in pretty much every major media outlet that exists. And Forbes before they were paid to play, Rolling Stone before they were paid to play. Those were big splashes that just helped drive content. That's, that's really what those things do. And yes, we get a lot of recognition about that, but for the most part, it's, it's a content driver. And I think the hyper-local stuff is too. That goes immediately into our blogs. It goes into our press page on our website. And those little things are the things that creep you up in the, in the rankings. And I would say there's been a handful of really great stories. I mean, there's been a lot of really great stories. I should, I should actually correct myself. And, and our, media, our media expert, Dan McCarthy, is one who lines a lot of that stuff up for us. But I mean, we've had some phenomenal press, really great, great interviews and I think most of it is telling the story. People want to know, people like to know about you. They want to know, oh my God, I can't believe, I didn't know you were, you were born in Texas and grew up, went to Colorado and that's where you cut your teeth in cannabis. And now you live in Lee and all those things. And, and they are compelling and people like to see what their neighbors are doing. Now it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And it's one of those things, it's hard to see the direct ROI, but it, it really compounds when you can do it well. So, so as we take a step back, this sounds so easy. You started four years ago, you hit 40 million. You're just getting started. E easy breezy, right? Like <laughs> we, 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 we know that's not the case because you've chosen a, a category that is, Oh my goodness. Degree of difficulty is so high. You have so much red tape, so many hurdles to jump over. Could you give people, we'll kind of flip. We, like we've shown like the, the, the fun, 
amazing story. Like, can you get a little real, like some of the obstacles you've had to overcome, whether it's through COVID or just being in this industry that is, it's the wild, wild west and, and like trying to navigate all of that and do it. I'd love to hear from a couple perspectives, some of the things you've had to overcome one, but two, how do you as a founder manage that from a mindset perspective, knowing that every day you wake up and it, you could have these curveballs coming at you left and right? Yeah. So everyone knows that just starting a business in general is, is really hard. I mean, the success rate is, is not, it's not great. It requires so much, so much commitment and so much personal time and and there's nobody that's going to run your business like the owner is going to run the business. And so there's all of those things. And then you add the layer. Oh, and then don't forget raising money and all that fun stuff, bank accounts and lines of credit and all those fun things that you normally get as a business. But then you add in the, the minefield of cannabis. And by the way, most of your funding options become very, very limited. There is there's very few. I can't say that there is none anymore because we are seeing that the debt world open up quite a bit at the bank level, which is huge. But, but for, the, for the most part, we're relying on private money. That's always a crapshoot because you don't quite know. Everybody, everybody's great when they're showing up for that interview or for that first date, right? Everybody's the best. They're on their best behavior. Oh my gosh, we are just great partners. And then the next thing, three months into it, you realize, oh man, you were not exactly who I thought you were. And there's really no way to, there's, it's hard to long-term date money because you need the money. So that's part of it. And then you don't have traditional business funding options like small business loans or bank loans, those kinds of things. It's even tough to get mortgages on property if you're, if cannabis is going to be operating in it. And that, that's even a challenge. So, so you've got all of those options, all those issues, and then you're dealing with the, with the relatively new, in the scope of regulatory bodies, a relatively new regulatory body that is also trying to figure itself out and is getting pushed and pulled by the governor and by the commissioners and by various things. And they're trying to work out how many people, how many, how many inspections they can do in a week and how many applications they can review in a week. And Basically, what ends up happening is you become a little bit of, you raise the money, you build the facility, because here in Massachusetts, you have to be completely built out with employees, with products in the vault, ready to open before you get the approval to open. That process is very expensive, and it can take a time frame that it isn't set. And what I mean by that is it could take a month. It could take six months. And I don't know as a business operator, as an entrepreneur who's started many, many businesses, I don't know how you ever plan and fund for that. How do you do that? How do you sit there and go, well, it could be a month and it could be six months and our run rate is this and we have to buy product and it's sitting there aging, by the way, because our product has an expiration date. And then we've got to pay a few employees and then we've got to think about that. It's, it's, it's just impossible to navigate that. So I, I, that's, that's probably the hardest part about this business is introduce the regulatory body. And that's when any regular business sense gets halted. And not that they're bad people or they're trying to harm or any of that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that they are not business people. They're bureaucrats. 
and we are business people trying to open and we only have X amount of money to, to manage. And so just when those two, when those two meet, it's really, really challenging. And I'll give you a perfect example of where we are right this moment in a regulatory quandary. And that is we have submitted, we submitted in the early, early, early spring, our outdoor application for outdoor cultivation, which by the way, is a, a priority license type, meaning it goes to the top of the pile. And we had our interview, which happens for any new license type, any that even though they've interviewed us, it seems a thousand times before, we have to have the three hour interview. And then after the interview, you just wait and you wait and you wait until you get notification that they're going to come out and inspect you, which is happening on Monday. So if Monday goes really, really well, we hit it out of the park and everything's a big thumbs up, then we cross our fingers and we hope that we get on the July agenda for the CCC meeting. And if we get on the meeting, then we're, we're through the hurdle, we get approved and we can put plants in the ground that day. If we don't make the meeting, so let's say they come in and they're like, we don't like where this sign is posted. You're going to have to change it or we don't like how this is set up. And it is a little bit arbitrary as often laws are that it's interpretation is up to the enforcer and they could just find things that make them unhappy and they can delay this. And then we don't make the agenda for July. And now my outdoor cultivation has a very small runway to get open and I mean, to get planted and in the ground so that we can pull plants, plants out in October. That's just one little example of you're going to ask me, I have it in my projections that we're going to have an outdoor grow, but I have no idea. I have no idea. It's just, it's up to the regulators, even though I'm existing, I'm operating. They've inspected this location at least four times and we'll just have to cross our fingers and see if we make it through. That's a really big number too, by the way, it's probably about 600 pounds of cannabis that we've projected into our, in our top line numbers. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, you've got to have a very flexible, agile, insane financial partner to, to help you there. So how, how do you, like you wake up and you have all of these unknowns that happen and more like curveballs like thrown at you, like do you have like a self-talk that you do every morning or do you like take a cold bath and get mentally prepared for the day? Like, how do you like keep an even keel in this industry? Wow. That's a really great question. And I think everybody has a different coping mechanism and a different way they vent and let things go. Right. But I think part of it is my partner, Eric and I have been through this so many times we have a safe, a safe person sitting across the table that I can go, this is crazy. I can't believe they're doing this. Ah, I have a freak out moment. And then you get that all out of you. Sometimes you cry. Sometimes you're so mad. Sometimes you're just like, I just can't believe this. And then sometimes it's just be a duck and the water just runs off your back. Right. And ultimately you get to be the duck, but sometimes you got to have a little moment of a freak out. And I would say that the number one thing I would tell people that are looking at this industry and thinking, I really want to jump into that. If you don't have a, a little bit of almost insanity in you, and if you don't have an exceptionally high risk tolerance, this is definitely not the industry for you. Maybe you should be an accountant in the industry, or maybe you should just be marketing in the industry, or maybe you should, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking of a million ways of, of, of all the different people that support us, but being the operator and the owner on the, on the license is quite different. And I can tell you that many sleepless nights, 
many wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, did we do that? Agita when the, when the inspectors walk in, it, it's just, it's a lot. And it requires a, a, a particular mindset in my opinion. And I think I kind of look at it like you kind of got to be a little bit of a, of a cowboy or a cowgirl. And you just got to get on the horse and ride it and work it out. And that's really what canvas is to me. Right. Yeah. It's just step by step. It's get momentum towards knocking like this problem out of the way to, to move on to the next thing. Cause I'm interested, what are those things that keep you up at night? Like for me as like a business owner, and again, I have a, a marketing agency, like I do not have the degree of difficulty that you have at all. I mean, I would just be under the covers crying, but for me, I think about we're hiring more people like payroll. I'm, I'm worried about, Hey, what's going on with the economy? Is there going to be churn with clients? But those are things that, that, that keep me up at night, potentially? I'm like, am I burning my team out? How are they feeling? Like, what are those things that you think about that give you those sleepless nights? And, and how do you address that? For me, I think it varies. For the most part, our cash flow is, is pretty solid. So it's the little things like paying bills and that kind of thing. I, I feel like those are more manageable for me. Really, for me, it is... For example, we're in the middle of a fundraise right now and we'll send out or we'll send out financials and we'll answer questions and we'll talk with people either in person or, or via Zoom. And, and those will be the moments that I wake up and go, ah, oh, did I tell them this? Did we go over this? Did I answer that correctly? Is that a good person? Is this somebody we want to work with? It seems like a really nice person. Those are the kind of things that, that wake, wake me up. And then I would say the other things that wake me up are more compliance stuff. Like I just wake up and think about, oh, did we do that right? Or, oh, I got to, I got to be sure and take a note and ask tomorrow to make sure we covered this. And that's really what I'm finding is, is the big wake up in the, in the middle of the night moment. It's very rarely, I would say it's almost always silly. I mean, what is the rule? Like we, we, we worry about, about we worry hundred percent or 98% of the things we worry about are things that are, are just, we're making it up. And I kind of, I'm getting better at walking myself off the ledge when I do wake up. I'm like, is there anything, is there anything you can do about this right now? And if there is, then let's go do that. And are you just making, is this a story you're telling yourself? And nine times out of 10, I'm able to walk out, walk myself off the ledge, but I will tell you, I am a consumer of our products. And there's certain two o'clocks in the morning that I just go downstairs and consume product and then go back to bed. So, um, the, the, all, all of those things help, but I, it, believe me, again, if, if you're looking for to sleep like a baby every night and not worry about a lot of stuff, this is probably not for you. <laughs> no, totally. I, I, I totally agree with 98% of your worries are like self-inflicted, but it's that also is potentially what keeps you sharp and can help with the success, right? It's like a, a give and a take. And so I, I'm... You, you kind of hit on things to walk out, watch out for and like common mistakes that, that have been made. I'm also interested when we talked before, there's a lot of like software tools that aren't made for cannabis. There's, there's so much opportunity. If people are like, Hey, I want to jump into this industry, this category, what are some products, whether it's software or, or just other opportunities that you think over the next five to 10 years are really going to take off in, in cannabis, whether it's like Shopify for cannabis or, or something else, because you, you have such a perspective on the industry that, that most don't. One of our biggest pain points is the point of sale software and also the ability to 
take payment in certain ways. And because we're federally illegal, we can't accept credit cards. Some people try to use aggregators and other things, but I've I've been down the road of having accounts closed or seized because of using credit cards or whatever back in the day. And so we just don't take that risk. And, and our accountants are, are pretty adamant, adamant about it. And, it we're, and I'm adamant about it. So we're just not going to do those things. But because of that, I'm really limited in that I can't just use a debit card online to pay because it goes to the Visa platform, right? So the only way we can do online is to do this integration with your bank account, which, I mean, who wants to do that? I don't want to give my bank account to anybody else. I mean, especially in this day and age. So it makes it really tricky to speed up the transaction and and make this more seamless. Think about when you order Uber Eats or you order through whatever, just DoorDash, you pick one. You, you order your food, you put your credit card in, you, they either bring it to you, you go pick it up. I mean, think about how easy it is. But with cannabis, it's this process of I've got to check your ID. And then now we're going to go and order the stuff. And yeah, you can order it, but you can't pay. But you can pay if you give me your bank account. But you don't want to do that. And then you select the time that you're going to come. And then you come in. And then we have to go through the process of of scanning it all in when you're there. It's a really important part of the process. And then we take your payment, cash or debit card. And then you walk out the door. So, so think about if I, I can't even get an account with Shopify, like they won't even, they won't even let me open an account. So that's not even an option. And so, and, and you also have to be careful. We've hit, we've seen some websites get some pushback on various website platforms. And so you have to be thoughtful about that. You know, we have, I think, I don't know, we have one or two backup websites, like ready to go if we ever get shut down. And it's just, it's just one of those crazy things where everything that normal businesses take for granted, we just have so much more red tape to get through. And like I said, the point of sale, every cannabis point of sale on, on the market right now has been created for cannabis by cannabis, not created by Open Table, which by the way, would be the best software if I could figure out how to get them onto the dark side of cannabis. Because I love Open Table. It works really, really well. I've worked in a lot of restaurants and I always am watching it when people are using it. And I'm like, Jesus, it's just genius. It's so easy. How come we can't have that? Well, we can't because some companies just don't want to dip their toe into the weed world, right? So that, that's just one little example of how painful it is. And then add all the other complexities of how compliant we have to be and how expensive that is. Every, every gram of product that is in my store has to be under camera all the time. There's really no leeway for that. I can't have dark spots. I can't have spots that are blind spots that you could take because everybody from the regulatory side is worried about diversion. That's their biggest concern. So that alone, I mean, just every single facility we have is a six-figure security system. It just, that comes with the territory. Yeah, I mean, those are little things. And then just think about delivery. Well, here in Massachusetts, in order to deliver product to a home, I have to have two drivers in a car. So just start adding up the money, (laughs) two drivers in a car, in a van that is fully cameraed, GPS. I have to have a monitoring agent that's static in a location that's watching the van. I have to carry limited amount of product. I can't be an ice cream model. I have to be a pizza model. So people can't add on to their order They can't, we can't just be out in the community and wait for orders to come in and fulfill it from the van and go deliver it. Nope, that's not an option. And so it just becomes so expensive to operate. You really have to assess, 
is this worth our time and energy right now when we have this great retail business model, we have a great cultivation model, we're about to open up into manufacturing, like that, those are the, those are the kind of the tough decisions that we make. But again, it's, it's because we can't operate nor, like a normal business. Wow. I mean, those hurdles are insane. It's it's also potentially your moat as well, because you've climbed those walls, you've gone over those hurdles, you have a thriving business. Anyone that's wanting to come in and try and take up market share, it's like, good luck. <laughs> you're you're going to die from starvation rather than what, like homicide in, in, in this category. And right. so... I'd love to know, like, what what does the future look like? You mentioned that you're you're raising around. I mean, the success has been insane, even given everything you've gone through in the past four years. Are you are you you're like, hey, we're good with where we're at, or oh no, we're we're just getting started. It's two locations. We want to go to X amount in Massachusetts, or you're looking to branch out into other parts of the 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 country. Like, what what does that look like, and wh- like, how much have you raised, and how much are you, are you looking to raise? So we have. We are, we are currently in the market for about $10 million, and that is to maximize lead cultivation and our manufacturing location, which is TBD right now. Can I ask a dumb question? Can you define what cultivation means and what manufacturing means in this sure, category? Sure. So in, in Massachusetts, you have licensed categories, and cultivation is one license type. And at cultivation, that's where you grow the plant you harvest the plant, you can package the plant, and you can put the plant into pre-rolls. So that, that's, cult, that's cultivation defined here in, man, in, in Massachusetts. Manufacturing is where I want to take plant material and I want to turn it into something else. So I want to turn it into oil or I want to turn it into even infused pre-rolls. I can't do that in cultivation. I have to do that in a manufacturing location where I say I want to add keef to a pre-roll or I want to dip pre-rolls into oil and make bang sticks or that some other random product like that. Or I want to have a commercial kitchen where I'm making chocolates and gummies and drinks, caramels and brownies and all the things that that you want to make in a kitchen. So that's the big differentiation here. And like I said, those are two different license types that require two different payments, inspections, process, and there's no combining of those at all. You just have to go through it. So that those are the two difference. That's the two different license types that I'm talking about. And we really want to push a, we want to keep our, our retail very strategically honed in in Western Massachusetts. And we want to be able to create awesome products and take our, and expand our cultivation to push out into the rest of the state. And that's under our brand Smash Hits. And so 10 million in funding to go towards kind of those initiatives. That, that That's super exciting. Well, yeah. I'm very, very excited to to kind of see that path. And what, one last question that, that I, I love to kind of end with, which is what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Oh, man. What is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me in my, huh? That's a really great question. And this could be like with what you're doing now or even like early days as, as you're getting started. We've even had some funny examples where like the nicest thing was someone being very candid with someone and giving them the real truth they didn't want to hear but needed to hear. Yeah. So I, I have a couple of things that I think that I'm thinking about, but one of them is and this is this is it's not going to sound like super nice, but knowing now what I know and looking back, it was very nice. And we had a moment in time where our regulators were looking at 
one of our partners and really scratching their head. And they kept intimating, do you really know like anything about them? Like they kept asking really specific questions or how long have you known them? And, and I just kind of kept going, this is such an odd line of questioning. This is just odd. And at one point I got pulled into the, the enforcement office, and this was not in Massachusetts, this was in a different state. And I basically was being asked really specific questions about one of my business partners. And it ultimately came out that, and really what, the, what, what became of it was there was another person in the room that hadn't identified themselves. And I'm kind of trying to play nice with regulators and do the right thing and answer the questions truthfully. And at one point I just, and it was pretty early on in the questioning, I looked over and I'm like, I'm sorry, I know both of you because I've been working with both of you for years. Who are you? And he identified himself as an FBI agent of which I was like, holy crap. And at that moment in time, one of the regulators said, this is really serious. We understand this is not you or your business, but we need to let you know this is what's happening. And I just was like, wow. And at, at the moment I was kind of mad. I was like, how dare you guys bring me in here? Not tell me I'm even talking to this guy. It means to me asking, who are you? And now you're asking me questions about this partner and blah, blah, blah. But what ended up happening was they were right. And we exited that partnership kind of starting with that particular questioning. And they could have done it a million different ways. They could have just not been thoughtful about me. They could have not been thoughtful about the business, but they really were, did not want to harm me or create harm for me. And they really didn't want to shut the business down. And in hindsight, I realized they were incredibly generous by doing it the way they did it, which gave me kind of tipped me off that there was a problem and gave me enough ammunition to figure out how do we exit this relationship. Pretty cool, right? That's a pretty cool gift. That's <laughs> yeah, a crazy story. And to get that at the right time and the fact that they actually cared about you and your business, that, that's huge because, man, that could have gone a whole different direction, which might not have been as positive. Yeah. And I, I, won't, I won't go into much more detail other than to tell you that at that time in Colorado, one of my friends who was also a business owner was kidnapped by her partners and held for ransom. Another one was basically blackmailed. And so the, the threat was very real of working with people that maybe weren't the most up and up and didn't have your best interests at heart. So the spidey senses kind of took off from there and we were able to exit. But had they not pulled me in, I don't know that we would have rushed down an exit path with this partner. Isn't that interesting? Oh my gosh, that is insane. Yeah. yeah. Getting kidnapped, man, that is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> you think yeah. you trust a partner and then a bag goes over your head. Yeah. That yeah. Is and then you're you're in the back of an SUV and they're basically not going to let you out and they're holding you for ransom. Crazy. Oh my gosh. This is in Colorado. Yeah. This is in Colorado way back in the day. I mean, just crazy stuff. I'll write a book about it at some point. Yes, please do. And then we can come back <laughs> on and, and get into the details of that. But oh my goodness. Well, Meg, it's it's beyond impressive what you have built in fairly short amount of time, even though you've I'm sure you've aged quite a bit in those four years. But where else can where should people go if they want to learn more about you or about Canna Provisions? Oh, well, that's that's awesome opportunity. Cannaprovisions.com is our website. 
Um, you can also find us obviously on Facebook and Instagram, even though we're restricted and we can't do advertising, but you can find us there. And obviously I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook as well, personally. So that's, that's a great way to find me Instagram as well. So those are all places where you can find Meg Sanders. Awesome. Well, Meg, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. I have so enjoyed talking to you and I really look forward to talking again someday. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.